This morning, we turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 15 through 23. Paul had just made the point that sin will not have dominion over us because we have been freed from the law. We are no longer under law, but under grace. And then he says, beginning in verse 15, what then? Are we to continue in sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This being Reformation Sunday, it is significant that we are this morning in our series of studies in the book of Romans. And as you may well know, Paul's epistle to the Romans, as well as his epistle to the Galatians, played a tremendous role in the Reformation. We learn from church history that while serving as a Roman Catholic monk and professor of theology, Martin Luther desperately sought to find peace with God. Luther inflicted on himself all kinds of stringent rituals in the hope of securing salvation from God. We are told how that he would even at night disrobe himself while it was cold and he would find himself on the floor sweeping every square inch, mopping every square inch, in the hopes that he could appease God and so find peace with God. And having done all that he could to find peace with God, but to no avail, he came to the place where he, in fact, began to hate God. He saw that pleasing God was so stringent, he tried everything in the book to please God, to secure peace with God, but instead of finding peace with God, he only had torment in his soul. And it was during this period of unrest in his soul that he turned in desperation to a study of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And on reading verse 17 of the first chapter, this book of Romans, the light broke upon Luther. There in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, he read concerning the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That broke into Luther's heart, and Luther was wonderfully transformed by the grace of God. He found what he had been looking for all this while. He found peace 
with God, he found the peace of God. Luther came to the liberating realization that there was absolutely nothing he could do to merit God's favor to find peace with God other than to simply trust the righteousness of God given as a free gift to all who trust Christ as Savior. And as you know, that sparked the fires of the Reformation. Fast forward and we come to a man by the name of John Wesley. John Wesley was not one of the reformers. John Wesley was the founder. He was one of the founders of the Methodist movement. And like Luther, Wesley was a preacher for a number of years, but he did not have the assurance of salvation. You see, Luther, as well as Wesley, understood enough of the Word of God. They knew enough of the Word of God to understand that being a preacher of the Word of God or being involved in some noble endeavor for God does not necessarily put one right with God. Here was a man who was preaching for a number of years and yet lacked the assurance of his salvation. Wesley turned to the writings of the pietists, he turned to the writings of the mystics in the hope of finding peace with God, yet for all that he found no rest, no peace in his soul. But something happened one evening when he went to a meeting of the Moravian Christians at Aldersgate Street in London. And he wrote about this in his journal as follows, Wednesday, May 24th, 1738. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to the society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change wrought by God in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust Christ, Christ alone, for salvation." And what Wesley heard as a preface to Luther's commentary on Romans was, while it was being read, what he heard was largely quotations from that book by Luther. It was Paul's epistle to the Romans that turned his life around, such that his subsequent ministry led to the great revivals in England and America. And so, as we said, this epistle to the Romans was what ignited the fire of the Reformation in turning the lives of countless number of Christian leaders around in making them more effective for God, more vibrant, more assured concerning the gospel of Christ. Our text this morning addresses one of the major subjects with which the Reformation was concerned, and that is the whole relationship between law and grace. In verse 15, Paul raises a question, what then? Are we to continue in sin because we are not under law, but under grace? And he answers that rhetorical question in the same breath by saying, by no means. May it never happen. It's as though he was saying, perish the thought. Back in chapter 3 and verse 8, we learned that his detractors, that is Paul's detractors, were misquoting him slanderously alleging that he was promoting the idea of doing evil so that good might come. And similarly, they were twisting his teaching here in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14 to mean that since the Christian is not under the law but under grace, the Christian therefore has a green light for continuing in sin. This is the heresy that's known as antinomianism. The notion that a believer can 
live without obedience to the law of God since he or she is no longer under the law, having been saved by the free grace of God apart from works. The truth of the matter is that those who are so misled clearly misunderstand what scripture means in saying that the believer in Christ is not under the law, but under grace. And the question then is, what did Paul mean by the expression, we are no longer under the law, but under grace? First of all, contrary to what some today think it means, the statement is not to be understood as referring to distinct dispensations and modes of salvation. That is to say, the word of God is not teaching that whereas salvation in the Old Testament was by obedience of the law, in the New Testament, salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. There are some groups who hold that. It is a teaching known as dispensationalism. In fact, that's a bit of exaggeration, but much of the teaching would veer toward that direction. Paul could not have been saying that because in Romans chapter 4, he showed from Scripture how that both Abraham and David were saved by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul spent a whole chapter, Paul, in Romans chapter 4, spent a great deal of time arguing that salvation comes strictly by faith, apart from rituals, apart from good works. And my friends, the truth is this, that whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, all who are and will ever be saved are and will be saved, not by what they do, but by faith and trust in Christ. And why is that so? You see, of necessity, the Christian is not under the law, but under grace, because the law has no saving power. The law cannot save. The law is weak and powerless to save anyone. Paul is going to say that in Romans chapter 8. As we've seen in past studies, among the functions of the law is to make us conscious of sin. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. It's to increase trespass, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, thereby calling attention to man's sinful nature. The law serves to accentuate, it serves to accentuate the gravity of sin. That as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 17, sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. That is the function of the law, to aggravate and to accentuate sin, to show up man's sinfulness. In short, the law does not save, the law only condemns. And through the workings of the grace of God, the best part of it is this, that the law thus drives us to seek refuge in Christ. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. The law was our schoolmaster. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. All that the law does is to show us our condemnation, is to show us our utter sinfulness and to drive us to seek refuge in the Lord Jesus as our Savior. Positively speaking, what then does the Word of God mean when it says that we are not under the law, but under grace? It means this, that through the saving work of Christ, 
Through faith and trust in him, God relates to us not on the basis of legal strictures and demands, but on the basis of his liberating grace, whereby we are enabled, we are empowered by the Spirit of God to fulfill his will. A.T. Pearson, a preacher of the 19th and early 20th century, was an American Baptist preacher, interestingly. He knew D.L. Moody, and he was successor to C.H. Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And A.T. Pearson explains this whole matter of the Christian being not under the law but under grace as follows. He says this, quote, Law requires of us perfect obedience in order to acceptance. Grace provides for us a perfect obedience, acceptance in Christ Law, by its very perfection, lays on us burdens of duty. Grace interposes to lift our burdens and bear them for us. Law has no room for pardon but must exact penalty. Grace remits penalty and offers abundant pardon. Law can recognize only desert and pays wages. Grace has no reference to desert and bestows gifts. Law, therefore, brings the sinner into utter despair. Grace inspires hope, even the most hopeless. And then he says this, law cannot change character. It has no transforming power. Grace undertakes to make a sinner a new creation, end quote. As I love to say, and as we said some time ago, the law... It is a security monitor. It only tells you that there is a robbery. The truth is, it tells us, beloved, that sin and Satan has robbed us of righteousness, leaving us in a very bad way, exposed to condemnation, exposed to the eternal wrath of God. That's all the law does. The law saves no one. Now, in light of this rhetorical question raised by Paul here in Romans chapter 6 and verse 15, what then are we to sin that because we are not under law but under grace? That question is designed to correct the mistaken notion that freedom from the law does not imply freedom to sin. That's the thrust of that rhetorical question. Paul indirectly is saying, look, just because we are not under the law in the sense of being under its it's condemning power, not because we are not obliged to be under its strictures, its demands. He says that doesn't give us license to sin. And the argument he presents in verses 16 through 23 shows how unthinkable it is for one to hold such view. The central idea of the passage centers on the concepts of freedom and slavery. Paul presses on the point that in the very nature of things, every person is a slave of some kind. Every person is a slave of one master or another. One is either a slave of sin or one is a slave of obedience. The one has freedom from righteousness, verse 20, which turns out to be no real freedom, verse 21. The other has freedom from sin, in which case they become slaves of righteousness, verse 18, which proves to be spiritually fruitful, verse 22. In short, Paul implicitly asserts that real freedom, real freedom comes through the transforming grace of God, whereby we turn from sin and yield to God that true freedom is not merely liberation from slavery, but a life of slavery to God. 
Paul begins in verse 16. Do you not know? <laughs> and the question suggests, let's say, you ought to know this. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Don't you know that is what he's saying? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The word present here means to place oneself at the disposal of the other. It means to subject oneself to another as a slave to a master. Paul is saying, don't you know that if you do that, that if you present yourselves to another person, to obey that person, you are that person's slave? As we said in verse 16, implied there is that every person is a slave to one master or another. There is no middle ground. There is no third option. Either it is that one is a slave of sin or one is a slave of obedience. Either it is that one is a slave to Satan or one is a slave to Christ. And whether they realize it or not, the word of God teaches that everyone is implicated in one form or another, in one way or another, when it comes to this matter of slavery. No, that's not a good word in our time, culturally. It's a word that's deemed offensive, and as we explained in Sunday school this morning, we have opted to follow Paul's line here in using the word slave because Paul's first readers knew exactly what he was talking about. To be a slave was considered scandalous. But Paul took that word and he transformed it with reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, look, if it is that you are not a slave to sin, then you are a slave to someone else. How true. As the pop singer, musician Bob Dylan puts it, he puts it like this. He talks about you may be an ambassador to England or France or so on and so forth, but here's what he says, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You know something? That's true. <laughs> that reflects the spirit of the word of God because in his farewell address to the people of Israel, Joshua in Joshua 24 and verse 15 challenged the people of his day when he said this, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We have to serve somebody. And may I suggest to you this morning, every single one of us this morning, whether here or listening by way of Zoom, you are a slave to someone. You are either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. Either it is you're a slave of God or you're a slave of the devil. It's, it's as simple as that. That's what the Word of God teaches the sad, sobering truth is that every single human being was born into a condition of slavery. Slavery to sin. Conceived in sin and birthed in iniquity, Psalm 51 and verse 5, their affection, their will, their minds, their intellect have all been corrupted by sin, have all been corrupted by the sin of Adam such that their natural default position is to give in to sin. Every single human being born into this world was born a slave to sin. 
Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 describes the nature of this slavery, this servitude to sin. Paul writes, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's writing to the Ephesian believers who had been recently converted. And he says this, you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by, here it comes, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It matters not how good one might be, humanly speaking. It matters not the good one has done. It matters not how reputed, well reputed might one might be for goodness, for morality. The word of God teaches that every single human being born into this world, apart from Christ, having come to Christ, is under servitude to sin and Satan. How do we know that unbelievers, those who are not saved, are slaves of sin? Hear the words of Jesus in John chapter 8 and verse 34. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Referring to humanity outside of Christ, here's how 1 John 5 lumps everybody together. But John says, we know that we are of God and the whole world. You see that? The distinction, two classes of people in the world. Those who are saved, those who are not saved, those who are in Christ, those who are outside of Christ. Those who are, those who are, are saved are slaves of Christ. Those who are not saved are slaves of, of the devil. And here's what John says, referring to humanity outside of Christ. He says this, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. They're being rocked by the devil. That's why they're comfortable. That's why they have no qualms of conscience when it comes to sin. They're dead in trespasses and sins, the word of God says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And to be a slave of sin means that our entire being, all our faculties, our affections, our wills, our minds are, were affected by the corrupting, contaminating influence of sin. This is what caused is one to be rebellious toward God, to go on one's own way, having no desire for God, no inclination toward God. Give, here's the point. Given that choice to please God, one who is a slave of sin cannot help but turn his or her back on God. Do we believe that? Listen to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 6. Isaiah looks at the mass of humanity and he says this, All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why our Lord Jesus died. Here's the point. If we were not all slaves of sin, there would have been no need for Jesus to have died. Because what was the function of his death? To liberate us from the tyranny of sin and the devil. That's what the word of God teaches. That people are born slaves to sin is evidenced by the fact, here comes, that no one has to teach a child to do wrong. Oh my, that sweet, cuddly infant. My little saint, my little angel. No, he's not. She's not. And by the way, we love them. We cherish them, don't we? What I'm saying here is not meant to denigrate your sweet little child, your sweet little grandchild. Many years ago, we held one, and he was, you know, he's so, so sweet, so cuddly. But here's the point. Give them time. In fact, leave them alone. 
Hope it not, and what happens, they turn out as rotten and even vile, as vile and wretched as they could possibly be. We speak then of the doctrine of human depravity. What do we mean when we speak of the doctrine of human depravity? We do not mean that every human being is as bad and wicked and vile as they could possibly be. That's not what the doctrine of human depravity means. That could not be true because there are some very wonderful people. There are some people who are not Christians who would put some Christians to shame. But what does the doctrine of human depravity mean? It means this, that by virtue of the corrupting, contaminating power and influence of Adam's sin, sin has permeated the entire being, all the faculties, mind, will, soul, every aspect of man, such that, as Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 puts it, God looked at the world. When he looked at the world, what did he see? He saw this, that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And isn't it true, beloved, isn't it true that for even for those who are saved by the grace of God, those of us who know the transforming power of God, don't we know the hints of depravity that sometimes surface in our thoughts, in our lives? We do not, come be honest now, we do not honestly always gravitate to the things of God as we should, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Hence, the songwriter says, take my heart, Lord, and seal it, seal it for thy courts above, left to ourselves, even though we are redeemed, even though we have been transformed by the grace of God, we turn our backs on God. Here's the point. Sin is a power. Sin is a power. My friends, such is the pitiful condition of every human being until the day that Jesus comes. Outside of Jesus Christ, that is the condition of every human being until Jesus comes. That is why this world is not going to get any better. That is why the word of God says evil men and seducers will walk and worse. Why? Apart from the grace of God, they're vile, they're wretched. Apart from the saving grace of God, the word of God teaches in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, we are enslaved to various passions and pleasures. We are enslaved, Titus chapter 2, verse 3, to false gods. 2 Timothy 2, verse 26, we are enslaved to Satan, taken captive by him to do his own will. That is what the word of God says. And ultimately, the word of God teaches in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, that enslaved to sin, man is ultimately enslaved to the fear of death. Why? Because he knows that he's going to meet God at the judgment bar. Well, what of the believer in Christ? As we said, though regenerated and renewed by the Spirit of God, the believer in Christ remains in a body, this body of ours, described in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6 as the body of sin. Paul is not describing an unsaved person. Paul is describing those of us who are saved. He's describing himself. And he says we are living in a body of sin. Sin works in our members. Sin lurks in our members. That's why we are inclined to look at the wrong things. That's why we are inclined to look at what we should not be looking at, to go where we should not go, that is apart from the restraining grace of God. 
In being in the body of sin, then the believer, according to the word of God, is susceptible to the old sinful nature, such as the Apostle John could write in 1 John verse 1, verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. What this means then is that reckoning himself to be dead to sin, as we saw last week, and alive to God, the believer must, by the grace of God, continually decide as to which master he will serve. Will he be a slave of sin or will he be a slave of righteousness, of obedience to God, verse 16, or as well, will he be a slave to impurity and lawlessness or a slave to righteousness, verse 22. Now, having established that every person is a slave to someone, either of sin or of righteousness, Paul, in turning to the Roman Christians, evaluates their spiritual condition as follows. He says there, but thanks be to God. Do you see that? Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, you have become, can't avoid it, slaves of righteousness. Implicit in the statement of the apostle is the nature of a genuine saving experience of salvation. Here Paul, from this point onward to verse 22, makes it clear that far from issuing in license to sin, true saving faith in Christ issues in transformation of life. Paul states, first of all, what these Roman Christians were before God saved them. He says this, they were once slaves of sin. And what did their life of slavery to sin entail? It involved presenting their members, that is, the various parts of their bodies, to impurity and lawlessness. That's what he says. The Greek word that's translated here, impurity, speaks of primarily of sexual immorality to any kind of illicit sexual activity, whereas impurity has in view... The defilement of the person, lawlessness, has to do with defiance of the law of God. Before these Christians became saved, they gave themselves, Paul says, to impurity. Notice how he puts it. They gave themselves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. You know what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying there that when they were under slavery to sin, they just kept adding sin to sin. It was their very nature, it was their default position to just keep sinning and sinning. In other words, they were driven, they were controlled by their master, sin. But oh, the transforming grace, the transforming effects of slavery to Christ, verses 17 through 22. And what are the transforming effects of saving faith in Christ? What are the transforming effects of slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ? First of all, Paul notes this, a definite decisive break with sin. A definite decisive break with sin. Because Paul, in addressing his readers, says to them in verse 17b, you were once slaves of sin. The Greek verb translated were is in the imperfect tense, denoting continuous action in the past. And the way that is translated properly would be this. Paul would be saying to them, in effect, 
that as a way of life, they used to be slaves. They used to be slaves, highlighting the fact that as far as their present lives were concerned, their own life of servitude to sin was a thing of the past. They used to be like that, but they no longer are, is what Paul is saying. In this way, he attests to the radical, dramatic nature of their transformation. You remember what John Newton said? John Newton was a man who had led an immoral life, a profligate life, a dissolute life. And when he came to Christ, he was greatly humbled. He was wonderfully transformed. He said this. Here's what John Newton said along the lines of what Paul is saying here of these Roman Christians. They used to be Slaves of sin, he said this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul says you used to be like that. Remember what he said to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 6? Somewhere there, verse 17. He says, do not be deceived, neither drunkards, nor fornicators, nor idolaters, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, that he's speaking of homosexuality, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. And then he goes on to say this, and such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Salvation in Jesus Christ and servitude to the Lord Jesus Christ issues in transformation of life whereby there's a clean, decisive break with sin. Is that true of your life? We're not talking this morning about sinless perfection. Oh yes, don't we struggle as Christians with remaining sin? Don't we struggle with bad thoughts? Don't we struggle with bad attitudes? But here's the point. We're not talking about perfection. What we're saying is this. What evidence is there that you are truly saved? And one of the evidences is this. That where there's true saving faith in Christ and where one has come under the yoke of slavery to Christ, there will be a decisive, decided break with sin. It doesn't mean we become perfect, but it means we have a new attitude towards sin. We have a new attitude towards sin. Sin is not our way of life. That's what we used to be. But having come under slavery to Christ, we come in submission to him. Our lives are transformed. Our lives reflect the fact that we are no longer what we used to be. Well, we have to stop here this morning, but here's the truth, beloved. And here's the truth for those who are not saved this morning. Salvation is not a matter of trying to better oneself. If you try to better yourself, if you try to improve yourself without reference to faith in Jesus Christ, you are bringing yourself under slavery to the principle of law. And the word of God teaches by the law, by good works, by trying to keep the commandments, by trying to do everything in the book. Here's the point. If we try to do that, we only end up condemning ourselves. Why? Because the law demands absolute perfection. Absolute perfection. I dare say this morning on the authority of God's word that if any person, including this preacher, any person, including you, must enter heaven, is to enter heaven 
you're going to have to enter heaven with perfect righteousness. Absolute righteousness. Here's the bad news. None of us has it. Here's the good news. That perfect righteousness is in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel is this, that when by faith we look away from our good works, yes, we even look away from our own wretchedness, we confess that to God, we look to Christ, the bleeding sacrificial lamb, the perfect righteousness of God, we anchor our faith and trust in him and him alone to save. The word of God teaches Romans chapter 5 verse 1, therefore having been justified, that is declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever done that? Have you ever come to that place of trust in Christ alone for your salvation? I invite you to do that this day before it is too late.